These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The legendary history of Sumer has seen great men rising to high station and battling with all their might to build a civilization and defend it from violent barbarism. Ibisin, the last king of Sumer, is not one of those great men. He has more in common with a cartoon villain, inept and arrogant. In fairness, even a great king may not have been able to save Ur at this point, but Ibisin failed spectacularly. Being the last Sumerian king, quite a lot was written about him shortly afterwards, and we have a fair number of revealing letters about the key moment in his reign. So even though we know how his story ends, this is one of very few places that we have a good amount of details to fill in. Ibisin ascended to the throne, and as was now standard, to godhood following the death of his father Shu-Sin in 2028. His own year name records inform us that nothing at all of significance occurred in the first nine years of his reign. We know this to be deeply false. He claims in his fourth year to have destroyed the people of Simmerim, and in his sixth year he casually mentions that he just happened to build new walls around Nippur and Ur. But other than that, he claims to have been focused on royal marriages or priest selection, and even had years where nothing significant at all happened, which get listed as the year after last year's events took place. What was actually occurring was a mass mad panic. His father had not left the empire in good shape. Pretty much just Sumer and some surrounding regions with enemies on all fronts. Assyria in the north had broken away completely to form its own kingdom, the first time the region would be independently unified in history, and within a year or two the Elamites would also pull away from the Sumerians. These distant lands are one thing, but after only three years of tolerating his misrule, the city of Larsa, less than 40 miles away from the capital at Ur, broke free and founded its own dynasty. Lagash and Uma, too, joined in this wave of disunification, as did Eshnunna and Susa, believing that this fool king was making things so much worse that they were better off standing alone against this new wave of barbarism than joining in with his mismanaged defense efforts. Ibisin claims only two military victories in his first 11 years, which is the critical phase of his reign, one against the barbarians of Simmerim, as mentioned, and one punitive expedition against the now-independent Elamites, though in the latter case there may not have actually been any victory, since he doesn't seem to return home with anything to show for it. The core problem in this period was the wave of Amorites pressing against the borders from the north and west, against the two great walls his father and grandfather had built. Strategically, the great walls proved to be something of a trap, far too long to man completely with Ibisin's diminished resources, and tying up far too many resources in a vain attempt to hold a static position against the highly mobile Amorite nomads. 
After five years of failing to hold the wall, only to see more and more barbarian bands roaming the Sumerian countryside unchecked, Ibisin was forced to abandon them barely a decade after they'd been constructed, falling back to the key cities of Nippur and Ur, and fortifying them to the exclusion of all else. This proved to be an even greater error, as allowing the Amorites free reign through the agricultural and pasture land sparked grain shortages, and within two harvests, the price of grain in the cities had shot up 60 times. It's here, in his 11th year, that the age truly shifts, and we're fortunate enough to have a series of letters showing us the precise sequence of events that would prove to echo throughout the ages. The chain of correspondence actually begins some 25 years earlier, near the end of King Shulgi's reign. It's addressed to a young merchant named Ishbi Era, and it begins with a reference to some now lost letter, possibly one of introduction in which a gift was given. Shulgi says, You have made me so happy with your news in the last letter, and with the slave you sent as a gift. You're a capable man, and so beneficial to your lord. Next lines are a bit obscure, but they seem to be concluding the business from the previous lost letter. He then says, I have Babadi, the archivist, who is like a grandfather to me, a long-standing advisor who I trust, send you 600 talents of silver and 600 of gold taken from the budget for my troops. I'm also including some information that I need you to pass on to Babadi when you see him. If he doesn't receive it soon, his heart will turn to hatred. Get the money from him and use it to purchase grain from wherever you can at the best exchange rates you can manage. From today on, you are my son who makes me happy. Manage my grain purchases and you shall have the governorship of Isin, equal in my eyes to the entire lands of the Amorites or the Elamites. In this city, you will be just as important as I am. You may appoint or remove governors and captains, execute or blind criminals, and give rewards to faithful servants. Just make sure you don't suddenly go back on your word about these supply deals. And for 25 years, he rules peacefully as supply officer and governor of the city of Isin on the Euphrates River, a bit south of Nippur, until perhaps in the eighth or ninth year of Ibisin's reign, we get a letter from our faithful merchant, and not a happy one. Say to Ibisin, my lord, this is what Ishbiera, your servant, says. You ordered me to travel to Isin and Kazalu to purchase grain. With grain reaching the exchange rate of one shekel per gur, 20 talents of silver have been spent to purchase grain. I have heard news that the hostile Amorites have entered your territory. I brought 72,000 gur of grain to Isin. Now I have let the Amorites, all of them, penetrate into the land, and one by one I have secured the fortifications around me. Because of the Amorites, I am unable to hand this grain over for processing. They're stronger than me, and I'm stuck sitting here. Let my lord send 600 barges up the Euphrates River, with the following specifications, following certain canals and channels I know to be safe from the enemy. I will come out to meet them in a safe place, and that way the whole amount of grain can reach you. And with this, we could see just how desperate things are getting. 
The Amorites are everywhere, and no large shipment is safe to move by land. Additionally, the prices he quotes, one shekel per gur of grain, gur being a unit of volume, is very high, though as we'll see, it has even higher to go. He continues by offering advice, saying, My lord has become distressed about his battles against the Elamites, but the Elamite grain rations have quickly been exhausted, so do not slacken your forces. Do not fall into their slavery. And indeed, it seems that with this intelligence, Ibisin was able to push them until they ran out of supplies and were forced to abandon what may have well have been a siege at the very walls of Ur itself and claim a victory the next year. The letter continues, I have at my disposal enough grain to meet the needs of your palace and cities for 15 years. Is guarding the city of Isin and Nippur my responsibility? Know that I am without fear. Each one of the gods in these two cities is still showing their faces, and the people here are still healthy. Ishbi-era closes the letter with flowery flattery, ending by proclaiming that as long as Ibisin is alive, he will exercise kingship over Ur, and that before Shemash, god of the sun, but also of contracts and oaths, Ishbi-era will not change his word. We see that Ishbi-era has been loyal and competent for years, and in this time of extensive crisis, he's looking for ways to support the empire. We have the reply from King Ibisin to his loyal merchant governor, and surely it's filled with nothing but praise for Ishbi-era's extensive works. Or at least it would be if Ibisin was not actually a blustering fool. One can almost hear him spitting like a cartoon villain, berating a henchman. As long as Enlil was my lord, what course were you following? He opens the letter, or in modern idiom, we could say, By God, what do you think you are doing? Is this how you alter your word? Today, Enlil detests me. He detests his son, Sin. Sin being the moon god, principal deity of Ur, and also the god in Ibisin's name, and is in the process of handing over Ur to the enemy. The central part of the empire is just gone. The enemy has risen up, and all the lands are thrown into disarray. But on the day when Enlil turns again to his son Sin, you and your words will be marked out. You have received 20 talents of silver to purchase grain. And notice for a minute how much poorer Ibisin is than his grandfather, who had been giving 600 talents of gold and 600 talents of silver to do the same job. He continues, You purchase it at the price of one shekel per two gur, but then you turn around and sell to me at one shekel per one gur. And how could you allow Puzzer Namushta, commander of the fortress Igihursaga, to let the hostile Amorites penetrate into my land? Why has he not yet sent word about engaging in battle? There are puny men in my land. Why has he not faced the Amorites? Ibisin is apoplectic with rage, completely overwhelmed, with no way to solve this except to scream at his underlings. Honestly, in a 
literary world so full of state propaganda and mythologized characters, it's nice to hear an actual idiot, the sort we can all know a handful of, making an ass of himself on a 4,000-year-old tablet. It feels universally human. We can sympathize with Ishbiera upon reading these words, and we can understand the actions he takes in response. We don't actually get any more letters from Ishbiera himself, but we do get one from the governor of nearby Kazalu, a man named Puzzer Shulgi, sent to Ibi Sin. It reads, A messenger of Ishbiera came to me saying, Enlil has changed who shall be the shepherd of the land. Enlil has told me, Ishbiera, to bring before the god Nishina the cities, deities, and troops of the region between the rivers, from Hamzi in the north to the Sea of Magan in the south, and thus make Ishin the storehouse of Enlil, to make it famous, and to have Ishin occupy other places as spoils of war. Why does Kazalu continue to oppose me? I swear by High Enlil and my personal god Dagan that I will conquer Kazalu. I will build up the cities that Enlil has promised me with buildings and statues and offerings to the gods. But for you, I want you to destroy the man you call Lord, Ibisin, from within his own country and submit to Isin. And so from this, we learn that the governor of Isin, the once faithful Ishbiera, has abandoned the king who treated him so poorly and used his great wealth to start forging a new empire and has sent emissaries probably to many local governors, with only Puzzer Shulgi being loyal enough to both refuse the message and pass it along to Ibi Sin. But Puzzer Shulgi's news gets worse than that, continuing just as he said he would. Ishbiera has fortified Isin. Additionally, he's captured Nippur and installed a garrison, taking the former governor of that city prisoner. Similarly, he took Zinam prisoner and holds his town of Kish and plundered the town of Hamazi. He has appointed his own man as governor of Eshnuna and also took the town of Badziaba. Ishbiera is constantly at the head of his soldiers, a note that is likely in stark contrast to Ibisen himself. He controls all the local waterways and has taken a list of other places. And now Ishbiera is looking in my direction. I have no ally, nobody with whom I can align myself. Since he's not yet been able to take me, let me come to you when he falls upon me. My lord should know this. This letter would have come around 2017 or 2016 BCE, shortly after the announcement of the Isin dynasty. Honestly, the new era has begun. The new age of Akkadians and Babylonians is rising. But note here that Ishbi era has done something interesting. Well, he's, he's done a few interesting things. But of note is that he swore to conquer Kazalu on a god named Dagon. We haven't heard from a god named Dagon before. He isn't something borrowed from the Sumerians, but a god of the north, a Semitic innovation. With the shift in cultural gravity northwards, we're going to need to pause and take stock of what this new, later culture is going to look like, which involves meeting these new gods, reading new stories, and recreating the world along Semitic lines. But before we do that, we want to give the clever and industrious Sumerians a good send-off. 
So let's follow petulant Ibisen all the way to the bitter end now. Puzzershulgi receives a scathing response for his honest letter, with Ibisen castigating the governor for not having already met the traitor in battle and defeating him. Why are you sending me somebody saying, Ishbi-era has got his eyes on me, so let me come to you when he falls upon me, he demands, saying that as governor, he should be able to handle this, and indeed should already have handled it. For Ibisin, it is proof of the god's wrath that he should be afflicted with this betrayal and with inept governors among those who stayed loyal. Do not turn back and do not come to me. Prevent Ishbiera from taking your city and take away his lordship, he orders, though provides no advice or resources to assist in this task. The city of Kazalu does seem to survive Ibisin's kingship, but like many smaller cities of Sumer, they gave only nominal submission and were de facto independent. All of the cities near the edge of the Persian Gulf were suffering from salinization, partly as the after-effect of the climate event in 2200, and partly as a natural consequence of their form of irrigation agriculture. You see, as the water of the two rivers flowed down from the mountains, they contained a small bit of salt. All freshwater has traces of salt picked up as it flows through the riverbeds. This is normal. But the water would get diverted into the irrigation canal and flow out onto the field, where the water would evaporate or get absorbed by the plants, while the trace salts would remain in the ground. This isn't just an effect unique to Sumer, either. Anywhere that the water leaves a space through evaporation rather than flowing into the ocean gradually gets salty, like the Dead Sea in Israel or the Salt Lake in Utah. Over decades, this caused the salt content in the soil to increase to the point that it became increasingly difficult to grow plants in that soil. There were ways even then to mitigate this, but they required an active presence on the land. With two centuries of disruption, the areas most vulnerable to this, the great ancient cities in the south of Sumer, had seen their land poisoned. Eridu had been abandoned only a generation ago, and Ur survived only thanks to the ability to import grain from the north. But with control of the waterways, lost to the new power of Isin, and control of the land lost to the nomadic Amorites, the city of Ur was isolated at the south edge of the world. Ibisin is no longer king of an empire. He effectively rules nothing but a single city for a long, declining decade. Then, around 2007 BCE, the Elamites launched a raid into Sumer under the leadership of their new king, Kindatu. They may have been motivated by revenge, but mostly they were motivated by the fact that the city which had been the center of the world for the last few generations had collected a good pile of war loot and was now too weak to defend it. The people of Ur may have been weakened by hunger and without their empire, but they still had high walls and stiff backs, and idiot king or not, they were determined to defend their city. Ibisin, meanwhile, is sitting in his palace, dreaming up ever more grandiose year names, like the year Enlil covered foreign lands with the splendor of Ibisin, the king of Ur. 
The people managed to beat back the first raiding party. But the 23rd year of Ibisen's reign is called the year the stupid monkey in the foreign land struck against Ibisen, king of Ur. And the year after that, this raid proved more effective. The city of Ur was sacked, its wealth stolen, its people enslaved, and Ibisen himself was dragged off in chains as a prize of war by King Kendatu. So unimportant and poorly regarded is Ibisen at this point that we don't even know when he dies, just that he was held in disgrace in Elam for the rest of his life. And so it is here, in 2004 BCE, that the third dynasty of Ur, the last Sumerian kings, and any Sumerian control over history comes to an end. In later days, there would be some fond remembrances of Ibisen from the Sumerian scribes, but really, the shift from Ibisen to the later Akkadian dynasties is a very arbitrary line. In reality, even though Ur is in the furthest south of Sumer, as far away from Akkad as it was possible to be, by the time of Ibisen, both he and his people were pretty soundly Akkadianized. They spoke Akkadian and had Akkadian-style government and many Akkadian gods. Though the distances between the two cultures was really not all that great, it had inevitably shifted towards the northern Akkadian way of doing things. Really, we've been charting a long, slow decline of Sumerian culture ever since Lugal Zagazi's defeat by Sargon the Great, and since later scholars were all forced to learn Sumerian for hundreds of years after, they were all well-versed in this crucial period of history. And so, let's say farewell to Sumer in true Sumerian fashion, with a Naru poem entitled The Lamentation for Sumer and Ur. This was written perhaps only a generation after the final fall of Ur, and was fairly popular. The Akkadians, after all, never hated the Sumerians, and had great respect for them as cultural forefathers. But as the poem says, the gods decided that Sumer should end, and so we should lament its passing and move on. The poem begins. To overturn the appointed times, to obliterate the divine plans, the storms gather to strike like a flood. An, Enlil, Ea, and Ninhursag have decided its fate, to overturn the divine powers of Sumer, to lock up the favorable rain in its home, to destroy the city, to destroy the house, to destroy the cattle pen to level the sheepfold that the cattle should not stand in the pen, that the sheep should not multiply in the fold, that waterways should carry brackish water, that weeds should grow in the fertile fields, that mourning plants should grow in the open country, that the mother should not seek out her child, that the father should not say, oh, my dear wife, that the junior wife should take no joy in his embrace, and that the young child should not grow vigorous on his knee, that the wet nurse should not sing lullabies, to change the location of kingship, to defile the seeking of oracles, to take kingship away from the land, to cast the eye of the storm on all the land, to obliterate the divine plans by the order of An and Enlil. 
After An had frowned upon all the lands, after Enlil had looked favorably upon an enemy land, after Nintur had scattered the creatures that she had created, after Ea had altered the course of the Tigris and Euphrates, after Shamash had cast his curse on the roads and highways so as to obliterate the divine powers of Sumer, that its people should no longer dwell in their quarters, that they should be given over to live in an inimical place, that the Smaski and Elam, the enemy, should dwell in their place, that its shepherd, its own palace, should be captured by the enemy, that Ibisin should be taken to the land Elam in feathers, that from Mount Zabu on the edge of the sea to the borders of Anshan, like a swallow that has flown from his house, he should never return to his city. Fate cannot be changed. Who can overturn it? It is the command of An and Enlil. Who can oppose it? An frightened the very dwellings of Sumer. The people were afraid. Enlil blew an evil storm. Silence lay upon the city. Nintur bolted the door from the storehouses of the land. Ea blocked the water in the Tigris and the Euphrates. Shamash took away the pronouncement of equity and justice. Ishtar handed over victory in strife and battle to a rebellious land. Ninurta poured Sumer away like milk to the dogs. Turmoil descended upon the land, something that no one had ever known, something unseen, which had no name, something that could not be fathomed. The lands were confused in their fear. The gods of the city turned away. Its shepherd vanished. The people, in their fear, breathed only with difficulty. The storm immobilized them. The storm did not let them return. There was no return for them. The storm did not retreat. This is what Enlil, the shepherd of the black-headed people, did. Enlil, to destroy the loyal households, to decimate the loyal men, to put the evil eye on the sons of the loyal men, on the firstborn. Enlil then sent down Gutium from the mountains. Their advance was as the flood of Enlil that cannot be withstood. The great wind of the countryside filled the countryside. It advanced before them. The extensive countryside was destroyed. No one moved about there. The dark time was roasted by hailstones and flames. The bright time was wiped out by a shadow. In the darkness, noses were heaped up, heads were smashed. The storm was a harrow coming from above. The city was struck by a hoe. On that day, heaven rumbled, the earth trembled. The storm worked without respite. Heaven was darkened. It was covered by a shadow. The mountains roared. Shamash lay down at the horizon, dust passing over the mountains. Nana lay at the zenith. Its people were afraid. The city's god left his dwelling and stood aside. The foreigners in the city even chased away its dead. Large trees were uprooted. The forest growth was ripped out. The orchards were stripped of their fruits. They were cleaned of their offshoots. The crops drowned while it was still on the stalk. The yield of the grain diminished. Kish, built all alone on the high open country, was haunted. Adab, the settlement which stretches out along the river, was deprived of water. The snake of the mountains made his lair there. It became a rebellious land. The Gutians bred there, issued their seed, and Ninter wept bitter tears over her creatures. Alas, the destroyed city, my destroyed house, she cried bitterly. In Zabalim, the sacred Giguna was haunted. Ishtar abandoned Uruk and went off to enemy territory. 
In the Ayana, the enemy sets eyes upon the sacred Gepar shrine. The sacred Gepar of high priesthood was defiled. Its high priest was snatched and carried off to enemy territory. Alas, the destroyed city, my destroyed house, Ishtar cried bitterly. A violent storm blew over Uma and the Seg Kershaga. Shara took an unfamiliar path away from the Emah, his beloved dwelling. Ninmul cried bitter tears over her destroyed city. Oh, my city, whose charms can no longer satisfy me, she cried bitterly. Gersu, the city of heroes, was afflicted with a lightning storm. Ninurta took an unfamiliar path away from his temple. Mother Baal wept bitter tears in her Eirigug. Alas, the destroyed city, my destroyed house, she cried bitterly. On that day, the word of Enlil was an attacking storm. Who could fathom it? The word of Enlil was destruction on the right, was destruction on the left. This is what Enlil, the one who determines destinies, did. Enlil brought down the Elamites, the enemy from the highlands. Nansha, the noble daughter, was settled outside the city. Fire approached Ninmarki from the shrine Gu'aba. Large boats were carrying off its silver and lapis lazuli. The lady, sacred Ninmarki, was despondent because of her perished goods. On that day, he decreed a storm blazing like the mouth of a fire. The province of Lagash was handed over to Elam, and then the queen also reached the end of her time. On that day, the storm forced people to live in darkness. In order to destroy Kuara, it forced people to live in darkness. Ninaham. In her fear wept bitter tears. Alas, the destroyed city, my destroyed house, she cried bitterly. Asolui put his robes on with haste, and Lugal Banda took an unfamiliar path away from his beloved dwelling. Alas, the destroyed city, my destroyed house, Nimtsum cried bitterly. Eridu, floating on great waters, was deprived of drinking water. In its outer environs, which had turned into haunted plains, the loyal man in a place of treachery. Sin went up to his father, Enlil. O oh, father, why have you turned away from my city, which was built for you? Your food offerings can no longer be brought to Enlil in Nippur. The priests of countryside and city have been carried off by phantoms. Ur, like a city raked by a hoe, is a ruined mound. O oh, Enlil, gaze upon your city, an empty wasteland. The dogs of Ur no longer sniff at the base of the city walls. The man who used to drill large wells scratches the ground in the marketplace. Enlil, return to your embrace, my Ur, which is all alone. May you bring forth offspring in Ur. May you multiply its people. May you restore the divine powers of Sumer, which you have forgotten. Enlil then answered his son Sin. There is lamentation in the haunted city. Reeds of mourning grow there. My son, why do you concern yourself with crying? The judgment uttered by the assembly cannot be reversed. The word of An and Enlil knows no overturning. Ur was indeed given kingship, but it was not given an eternal reign. From time immemorial, since the land was founded until people multiplied, who has ever seen a reign of kingship that would take precedence forever? The reign of its kingship has been long indeed, but it had to exhaust itself. 
O my son, do not exert yourself in vain. Abandon your city. There are a few more things to discuss about the later legacy of Sumer before we move on. So next week, we will have a return of storytelling as we look again at more of the wisdom literature and proverbs that inform the character of the Sumerians and get adopted as foundational parts of later Akkadian culture. So join me next week as we debate aspects of creation and divinity and read a few of the many, many proverbs that the Sumerians loved to coin and collect. Thank you for listening.